0: Welcome back to Tell Her This Podcast, a storytelling podcast from women. No advice, no self-help, just perspective and stories. I'm your host, Rochelle Rice, and I love that I can share these stories across platforms and at no cost to you, the listener. But let's be clear, podcasting takes money and a lot of time. Please consider supporting this labor of love at buymeacoffee.com forward slash tell her this. For as little as $5, you can help ensure that I can keep bringing you these incredible stories. That's buymeacoffee.com forward slash tell her this. The link is also in the show notes. All right, let's get started. Mm-hmm.
1: This is the Tell Her This Podcast. Why you My name is Jalisa Whitley and I am 33 years old.
0: My friend Jalisa is driven and intentional. She's the kind of woman you want to know and then want to be friends with, a true lover of books an intellectual, and someone with a clear sense of self. Jalisa is a seeker, a maker, and a dreamer, and a doer, a lover of travel. In fact, if you've been listening to tell her this for a while, you'll recognize that she is the founder of Booked Trips, a curated travel experience for women who love books. More on that later. Jalisa, like most high-achieving women I know, is a bounty of a person. And when I sat down to hear her stories, I learned that the beautiful life she has created came at a cost. And in learning how to walk away, learning how to get free. It's hard to say who I am now
1: because I feel like I'm in process. So I'm a woman who's practicing being free in the world. Um, I am beginning to think of myself as a creative, not in the sense of an artist, but a sense of how I move in the world. So I'm a person who's always open to inspiration and to being in all of the world. So I think I'm a person who's working on presence when I think about myself and a person who's practicing joy. So not joy just in like the big things, but also just joy in being satisfiable. So I've been thinking a lot about, Adrienne Marie Brown talks about satisfiability in the context of her work around pleasure activism. And so what does it mean to like have enough? And so I'm a person who's really practicing enoughness. Like what's enough of food, what's enough of travel? What's enough in um, in belongings? What's enough in terms of like friends? So just being really satisfiable in the moment. So I'm a person who's working on satisfiability and presence and being in community. Community part is really important and hard for me right now. It's like how do I show up well? Um, even when I'm not showing up perfect. So that's the perfectionism piece in me. I wanna be the best friend that's always responding to texts like fully and in the moment. And it's just hard at this stage in my life. So how do I bring my imperfect self and, have, and let that offering be enough? I'm from upstate New York, Geneva, New York. And so I, um, in my adulthood have gotten Less involved in my family, but I want to show up differently. I think it's um, going down for the 4th of July, going down for Thanksgiving, um, just checking in with my mom more. So she's getting older. So she's in her late 60s and thinking about what it looks like to be a single woman at that age. So her and my father were married for 38 years before he died. Um, But she's never dated again, just has no plans to remarry or anything like that. So just thinking about how I can show up well for her. and like get her out of her shell. So she's like become like an activist in her older age. So she does like housing justice kind of things. And she volunteers a lot with her time. Um, and next year, I'm taking her to Cape Town, South Africa with me. And this will be her first time going out of the country. So just really like being present with her, but also learning from her that there's so many seasons of your life and so many versions of you to come. I was a daddy's girl growing up, so um, when I think about my childhood, I automatically think of music. So I come from a really musical family, and my dad in particular was very musical. So we played five instruments, and he sang, and we had a recording studio in our house. And so when I think of my childhood, I think of music. Like, karaoke was our thing. Like, four times a week, we were doing karaoke in the house. Like, that is our, that's our jam. But it would be like not just like fun karaoke, it'd be like, there's a production, we'll put the reverb on, like, girl, what's going on? Like, why is this a concert? (laughs) So yeah, I think of, we just had a very, like, fun musical household. My dad, um, he worked at a factory for over 25 years and so he was very good with his hands, but he was also an artist. So seeing somebody have that duality um, was really exciting as a kid. So he would he built me like um, he had a grand piano and he built me a baby piano to match it. And so we had our twin pianos together. He built me like a mini replica of our house in the backyard is like like a little dollhouse. Um, he I remember my like Barbie Lamborghini. We would drive together which I thought it was driving it was up the street. But it was like the ice cream shop there where we would get rainbow sherbet and German hot dogs like a couple times a week. And so- Yeah, when I think of my my childhood, I think of those things. Like, we took nap time together. He worked the third shift, so his shift was, like, 3 to 11 p.m. And so we would, like, take a nap together at 1, and I would, like, lay on his chest. We would watch um, soaps together, like, General Hospital, All My Children. Like, we had, like, our little routine. And so that's what I think of when I think of my childhood. I think of, like, a lot of daddy-daughter time, a lot of connection, and a lot of joy. Mom, it's funny. Like we're close now, but when I was younger, we weren't. Um, I think my dad was so big of a personality, um, and he was everybody's favorite person. That he kind of he was the son, and so now it's interesting. When I'm older, thinking about what that must have been like for her, being in the shadow all the time cuz she's like she's quieter. What we had in common was bowling. So that's like she's a very churchy woman, but bowling on Thursday nights was her thing. And so when I was um, younger, I'd be in bowling leagues. I was in varsity bowling. Like who who gets a varsity letter for bowling? Like it was so embarrassing. Um but that was that was our thing in common. And so when I think of my mom, I think of like good Christian woman. Like that was her, which is a very funny juxtaposition to my dad because he's like he's not a church person. Like he's like the one that's like in a bar singing or like, um, on a Harley, he rode Harley. So like, he was like the opposite of her. Um, but she was a Monday night, Thursday night, twice on Sunday church woman. And so, um, but she held the the household together. Like she was a cook every night woman. So she went to work, but every night we had like hot meals at home. Um, and the only thing she did out was was the bowling. When I think of my childhood, I don't think of her as much, which is really interesting. But I think um, when I think of future, future me and book trips, a lot of that was about her. We went to Mount Carrey, Kojic, where coaching people, Church of God in Christ um, folks. And to get out of church, honestly, the only thing I could do was go to the library. So she (laughs) was the core to my love of books um, because the church was, uh, the library was right across the street from our church. And so I would go every week and get my 10 books. I think at that time that was the max you can get was like 10 books a week. And so during Monday night church service, I would get my 10 books and um, it would be my escape, literally my escape from church, but also like my escape into worlds that were just different. I grew up um, in a very blue collar small town in upstate New York. Um, it's interesting now it's like Trump country because it's like very rural. It's, it's very weird now to go back to. But um, yeah, I just, I found other girls that were like me that were like shy, but like had big imaginations. I think about like Amelia Bedelia and and stuff like that. Um, and just girls who lived in in different countries. I was like, wow, there's a world that's like bigger than Geneva. Like going to Rochester, which is like 45 minutes away was big. Like that was a big city. So there were like girls going on explorations and living in different places. And so I think my mom, in a backhanded way was really the inspiration for my love of literature and storytelling. And when I was little, I would be like four and then any other littler cousins, I would read to them. So like during family um, events, we'd like put newspaper out where the kids would um, like eat together and I'd be like reading to all the little kids and she would encourage that. And she was always encouraging me to like write poetry. Like I was a very creative kid. I drew, I wrote poetry, I wrote songs, I would sing. And so she was very much encouraging of like that part. Part of me. I would have this little tote bag for my books. I just was everything. I loved it. I, they had like these really comfortable couches and I would just get lost in it. And like my mom would have to like find me like where in the library I was because I would totally lose track of time. I feel like everybody's into bookstores now and I love bookstores, especially supporting indie bookstores, but I will always be a library girl. Like it's the one place that you don't have to spend money to belong. Like there's nowhere else that you could just sit for hours and be a human being. And especially like my library was like a very community library where it was just like books, beautiful library, but like D.C. public libraries, like MLK library, there's like history museums, there's art in there, there's co-working spaces, they have the rooftop, there's a cafe, like there's everything in the world there. And I'm like, and it's for free?
0: Amazing. Libraries all day. There's an unraveling from our families of origin. Those threads flail in the wind for a bit, but as we grow and have our own experiences, those unraveled fibers begin to form the fabric of who we are in our own right. This is a marker of growth and identity, but for some of us whose families had a tighter hold, it can feel like a delicious rebellion.
1: In undergrad and college, I studied abroad in Hungary and Romania, and. Like, no. (laughs) My like my parents didn't travel. Like we would road trip at the max, Um, but like my parents didn't have passports. Like going out of the country was not a thing. Neither of my parents even went to a four-year university. So to think about studying abroad, like okay, so we okay, so you're. you're going to college, but in a different country. Do you know people over there? Like, what language do they speak? What do they eat? Like, it was just like, what? What are we? What are we doing here? And we don't have any money to send you there. So, like, I don't know how you're going to figure out the like scholarship situation. So it was just like, I think that was the first moment where I was like, okay, this is these are new waters that nobody in my immediate circle can help me navigate. So I have to like figure that out myself. That's the first. Scenario I can I can think of of like I want a thing that the people around me couldn't imagine even wanting, and I have a curiosity that is bigger than my parents' curiosity would have even been. So I think, in um, Hungary and Romania, about of all of all places, like girl, you can go to London. Like, what's going on? <laughs> um, but I was studying race and ethnic relations. Um, specifically focused on the Roma there. And I was just really interested in like migration forced or by choice and like how we create community um, when we can't be in a static place. I was really interested in that because I, I hadn't imagined anything like that. I grew up in a small town and my family lived there. Like the house that I grew up in was the house that's still there that my mom lives in. Like I didn't, I couldn't have fathom that people had community in different places, that it wasn't place based, but it was more culture based or like tradition based and that those things could travel with you. Like it was just so different um, from who I was. So I just had to create a new identity of someone who wasn't scared to leave. Um, Because I think that's how a lot of my childhood was kind of defined of like. I went to college in my town because I couldn't fathom going anywhere else, Um, especially because my dad had gotten sick when I was an undergrad. So like not being in my hometown, like we would uh, I would go and bring my friends to Sunday dinners at my family's house. I would do laundry at my family's house in college, like being somewhere different. Just I couldn't have I couldn't fathom it at that moment. And then it was the first time that I was like, oh, I can be a totally different person. Um, and I'm OK. Like, I'm OK. That um, I didn't need the safety net of my family um, to be OK in the world. And actually, I could thrive um, in a different place that no no one, me included, knew where it was on the map <laughs> before that. Um, yeah, I think that was the first time. And of course, it, it sparked a, a wanderlust and a travel bug from there. But it was the first time that I could trust myself to stand on my own feet. Yeah, it's so funny because looking back, I don't remember being particularly scared, which is like I—I I must have been in the moment. But when I think about that trip, I think about the turn up. Like I miss that girl. I was the turn up girl. So when I think of a memory, um, I think about Budapest. They have these spa parties. So there's these like ancient baths from the 1500s where. Um, They would have DJs and like hundreds of people are just in the spa baths and they party until like 6 a.m. So I remember like going to those spa parties. We would like be walking home at 5 a.m. for class at 9 a.m. Like the turn up is what I remember when I think about that time. Like I was just like out there free and living. I was like, okay we outside, outside. I was like, I'm convinced Black people and white people party differently because, like, childhood things that happened, I was like, oh, that's what I think about. I just think about, like, having fun and, like, we would just walk around, like, like, I don't speak Romanian, but, like, I would just go around and figure it out I'd meet a random person and be like oh let's go to lunch together and we'd go to lunch and I didn't know this stranger before and I was like that's not the person I am at home so I think um those are what I think about of like I just leaned into it and I had this trust that folks have my best interest at heart like and I'm here to explore and to learn and to connect with people and like that's what I did I experienced every bit of it top to bottom (laughs)
0: I remember an anniversary my spouse and I celebrated during the lockdown portion of the pandemic. He ordered food from a fancy restaurant. We had a date night activity box from a subscription service, and our daughter was the evening's entertainment with a very cute and very funny magic and comedy routine she'd been practicing. As I was attempting to get dressed up for once, trading my daily sweatpants and t shirts for something more appropriate. I became overwhelmed with anxiety and just... (sighs) Understandably, the entire world was collectively losing it, but all things considered, in my personal circumstances, I was blindsided by this mix of excitement for an evening of levity right alongside my desire to just put my sweats back on, cancel the evening, and go to bed. But I had the privilege in that moment to take a beat say a prayer, and announce out loud to myself, standing in the mirror in my bedroom, anxiety? I see that you're in the car with me, but you can't drive. Did my anxious thoughts and feelings disappear? Not really. Did I somehow cure myself of all future anxiety? Absolutely not. But it unlocked this new perspective that I had some level of agency over my will. And over my perspective, I feel like a part of it is like acknowledging the anxiety
1: that it's there, the fear that it's there because it is real, like pretending that it's not isn't that. But just knowing that like you have more choice than it feels like. So when I am in and not an anxiety attack, but when I'm in an anxious moment, it feels like everything's narrow, like there's no choice. Like it's just going to it's just going to drive this thing. But like taking that positive acknowledgement allows you to say, like, I have some choice. Yes. Like I could give into that and that's a choice. And sometimes th- that's just the choice mm-hmm. because it just is too overwhelming. But sometimes there there are other choices like, is there a moment of breath? Is there a moment of tapping? Is there just a moment of pause between what you're feeling and how you're responding? I'm the the most scaredy cat person in the world. Like people are like, oh, you're so brave because you're all over the world. I'm not brave. I wouldn't say I'm brave. I just think like I allow my fear to sit alongside me. And I think I'm more curious than I'm fearful. Um, And I know that like, I trust myself enough to know that I can get through whatever. Like most scenarios, I can figure it out. I'm going to cry first. I am going to cry and then I'm going to figure it out. Um, And so I've Had enough examples of that where I can trust myself to move beyond the fear, like, because I know I'm equipped, like I've seen myself navigate enough that I'm like, okay, whatever comes, good, bad or otherwise, like I can move through it.
0: Julissa and I met through our very different work for a large church. She was working on the philanthropy side of things and I in music. We've since both left these roles and this organization. I won't go into details of our separate departures, but I will echo the sentiment that I've heard from folks in the nonprofit world. The culture and demands of nonprofit work are sometimes at the cost of one's self-preservation. I asked Julissa to tell me about her departure from the nonprofit philanthropy world. When I saw this question, I was like I felt a palpable,
1: like something not good, where I was just like, I just feel emotional about it. I think that part's still raw. I think I stumbled into philanthropy. I feel like I stumble into everything. There's like not intentionality until I storytell it um, in retrospect. But I came into philanthropy. um, I went to get my master's at the University of Maryland. And they had a new specialization at the time, which was nonprofit management and leadership. And there were these classes in philanthropy and I had never heard of philanthropy before. Like I had worked in nonprofit work. So in undergrad, I did like AmeriCorps, like we did Jumpstart, America Reads. like So I already had the belief that I was gonna change the world and that's um, why I came to DC. And so in undergrad to to go backwards, Um, did Jumpstart, did America Reads. And then there was a study abroad program. So the second time I went abroad was not abroad. It was in DC. So my focus was in undergrad. My majors were public policy and sociology. And so coming to DC where like laws were made was definitely like, oh, I have to come there. And not only did I come for the policy part, but I was like, a place where Black people are the majority, it was Chocolate City um, back then, um, which is dating me because it's not been Chocolate City in in some time. But um, coming to a place where like not only were Black people the majority, but they were empowered. And I, w- I didn't grow up in a place where Black people felt empowered. It felt like things happened to us, not that we could have an impact on things. So coming to D.C., blew my my world open and people come here to change the world. So that energy of being like an intern in the city and all the ways that you can make an impact, I was already very interested in that. So when I went to get my master's in public policy and they had this focus on nonprofit management and leadership, I was very interested in the sector. But then there was these classes in philanthropy and I was like, wait, you can give money away as a job. Oh, okay. I'm I'm going to do that. Like that sounds really amazing. And through that program, um, we got connected to different um, foundations that we can work at. And I worked at the Greater Washington Community Foundation was where my internship was. And I was just loved the ability um, to have an impact on the other side of it, where it was like we have this abundance and how do we use this abundance to support um, the well-being of our community? So I was really, really intrigued by that. And so I worked in the sector in different, in different ways for over a decade.
0: I asked Jalisa if after a more than decade-long career, would she consider returning to philanthropy? Not in this season. I think there's a lot of um,
1: like harm I have to work through. I think working in the nonprofit sector more largely, where um, philanthropy sits in, is not for the faint of heart. I think um, especially working in it during the pandemic was was really tough for me. I lost seven, eight family members in, like, a two-year span. And I was also the director at a nonprofit. Building something while you're mourning is an experience that I was not prepared for. And I cried every single day for over a year. And the feeling that I was a failure because I couldn't do it, like, I couldn't, that reservoir that previously I could draw from, was empty. And so for that reason, I I had to walk away from the sector.
0: Prior to the pandemic and right before what would become Jaleesa's last role in philanthropy, she was doing some consulting work for another institution. Jaleesa was leading the effort for a small foundation within a church This foundation distributed grant funding to community organizations. A few years before Jalisa became the program director for this fund, there had been a very public and painful departure of a Black leader from the church.
1: That job came on the heels of some consulting work that I did at um, a a small foundation of sorts inside like a progressive church. And... The work that I did there was really cool, like creating the systems and processes to give money into communities in ways that had a really local impact. So building from the ground up was really exciting. Um, But it being a very like white space, they didn't have the skills and capacities to hold the values that they espoused. So they wanted to be very anti-racist, and they wanted to focus on racial justice. And I think the intentions and values were there, but they, the internal systems and processes and skills hadn't caught up to that desire. When I came on this fund as their first program officer, I was also their first Black woman program officer. And this is on the heels of in the the wider church where this fund was was sitting, there was a Black woman minister who had been fired recently. And so when I was going into meetings to meet with grantees, they were like, oh, didn't y'all just go through some some drama around like firing a Black woman? Like what's going on there? And so like I had to be the mouthpiece for this larger like harm that people had been aware of that was happening. And then um, shortly after me coming on there, there's the first Black woman ED of the organization. So there's these like pocket token Black women that they were trying to signal that they're progressive, but there was no support or skill for how do you create a safety net around these women? So it was just like, you're out there trying to be the only one. And there's like, and the amount of harm that was happening, the amount of emails I would get every week with somebody being like, oh, I know I'm like probably racist. So can we just have a coffee conversation where you can teach me to be anti-racist? Like, what does this have to do with my job title? Like, I don't understand. And it would there would be so many, at least twice a week, there would be somebody being like, can we get coffee where you can just like tell me how to be less harmful? Like, what is going on? Like, that's why I was like, I will never be the first or the only again in any situation. Like a lot of people see that as like, this is an exciting signal of something good to come. But I, I've, I'm very fearful for Black women in particular when you're the first or the only in a space. Um, because I... I think about all of the the unspoken harm that you have to carry while you're also trying to do your the job that you were brought in to do. There was like a grantee meeting that we held, and this was the first set of grantees that was um, over seventy five percent people of color, most of those women led, some of those trans women led. And so it was just a very different docket of nonprofits that we were supporting, which people were really excited about. But I think at the moment we didn't have the space for how people should show up in there. And so one of our grantees was a Black trans woman and she was talking about how, yes, I'm grateful for this grant, but don't feel like this absolves you of something or that you should pat yourself on the back. Um, And that you're, this isn't like life changing work. Like, yes, I'm thankful, but like I'm still a Black trans woman in a very violent city, and my experience is not absolved off a $10,000 grant. And that really rubbed some people the wrong way. And there was um, one woman in particular who, like, was very combative with the grantee. And then the grantee was having a conversation with her that she didn't have the internal space to hold until she left. But after, she said the grantee attacked her, and she really... Like, she really wanted the grantee to pay.
0: Like, she really wanted retribution um, for what was happening. Jaleesa and her team began to work through the harm caused by this interaction between the grantee and the woman from the grant panel. And quite quickly, circumstances became untenable for Jaleesa. We held healing
1: circles and things like that, but that experience was really hard because for months she would email me and be like, I think you're racist or like, you know, you're minimizing what happened to me. And like, nothing was enough. The healing circles weren't enough. We had many meetings with her. We had one of those like healing circles where they brought in these external facilitators who did not have the skills to hold what reconciliation looks like in diverse settings, where at the end of it, this person starts crying, says she feels attacked. And literally it was like, People, we had a reconciliation process with the whole grantee committee, and people were just sharing their experience. And it was, we use I statements, all of these ground rules. People were sharing their experiences. She said she felt attacked and started crying, and that it centered her again. And it was like, we don't have the skills to do this. Like, we we really just don't. And for months, she would like send me pages of emails, three o'clock in the morning, that were... Just telling me how harmful I was, how harmful the grantee was. Like, and I had no support from the organization. I would send it to this, uh, the executive director, I would send it to the board of the church that the foundation was held in, and they did nothing. And it just, I had never felt that scared to open my email. Like, every day, I didn't know what was going to be in the email, like, like. Would she sue me? Like, what was going to happen? Like, And there was just so much fear on the part of the people in power in the church where they wanted everybody to just get along. So they were like, it'll probably work itself out. And like the lack of support I felt as a black woman, like it really scarred me. And at that same time, one of the members who was on the grantee committee died. It was just a lot going on and no support around it. And so I think that experience going into then being a director at a nonprofit in a pandemic, like those that four year process like really, really took me through it. and it honestly broke me. So that was like how I got out of philanthropy. I I just I couldn't handle that level of grief. And knowing that we didn't have the systems to hold it.
0: After leaving the funding work at the church, Jaleesa took on what would become her last role in nonprofit philanthropy work.
1: The sector comes in with these values around, like, we're a family. And um, this, like, built-in martyrdom of, like, you expect to be paid low wages and work long hours because the people that you're working on behalf of have it worse than you. And so there's this like built-in, yeah, kind of martyrdom to the sector, which worked for a while until the pandemic hit. The moment that I knew I needed to remove myself, um, where I was working at um, the nonprofit where I was a director, we had just launched the We were um, on Zoom, In a gathering, we would have these monthly sessions. And I'm facilitating the session, and I get a text message from my mom that my uncle died. And my first thought was, huh, I wonder how I can keep facilitating the session and, like, what I need to do to not feel anything in this moment so I can get through the session. My first thought wasn't, like oh, wow, I'm devastated that I lost one of my favorite uncles. Like, how's my mom doing? How am I going to get home? Like, it wasn't about the death. It was like, how do I numb myself enough to be the professional that I'm expected to be in this moment? And that's when I knew something was deeply broken. Something was really, really wrong. (laughs) That... The only way I could see being an effective professional was to be less human. And I feel like that was the turning point where I was like, oh, I can't. There's no, there's no coming back from this because I don't like the person I'm gonna be on the other side of this. Like I had lost so much And I thought that the issue was I wasn't strong enough, like that I was the issue. Nobody should lose seven people in that amount of time and worry about how to facilitate a meeting. We're doing work where we're talking about how do we build the systems and processes for people to live well and experience well-being, and I was the least well I had ever been in my life. Like the disconnect between the world I wanted to create in my work and the world I was experiencing in my day-to-day life, the gulf was too big. And so, yeah, I knew if I was going to be the type of human I wanted to be in the world that I couldn't work like that. And the only way I could see forward was to leave. And I won't say, I don't want to villainize like the the folks that were running the organization, like the ED and the COO, were black women, and I feel like if I could have been more transparent sooner, they would have tried to show up better for me. So I don't want to villainize them, but I think it was modeled um, so much. Uh, the The ED was a woman in her in her sixties. She had come out of retirement to come take that position as the head of the organization, and she had the very like like Gen X mindset of like, you push through, you go along to get along, like civil rights era kind of energy of like, there's nothing too much to give for the work. Like she was on one call with COVID and she was like, yeah, I I mean, it's fine. Like she was obviously not fine, but like she had pushed through. So there was this like unspoken kind of expectation of like pushing through. And I felt like, oh, it's like a millennial weakness in me. And, like, that I'm the problem. Like, there's something wrong with me that I can't push through enough. And that I don't have the sense of will enough. So, like, in that moment, I just felt like it was a big personal failing. And I think there's, um, looking back, there's a cultural failing where, like, we feel like the only way to do the work is at the expense of ourselves. is this really all we can imagine? Like we're trying to imagine these just worlds, but we can't even imagine a life where we're not working ourselves through sickness and we can't enjoy, there's not this sense of enjoyment being a part of the journey. Like is this, how limited is our imagination that we can say these big words, but we can't practice them in even the smallest ways in our lives? It was very, um, disappointing, honestly, to see, to look ahead. I was this high achieving person and like there was a pathway that I could have walked into of continued nonprofit leadership. And I couldn't imagine wanting that. And so I, it was like really this crisis of like sense of self, like, oh, I had worked, worked to toward this thing that I thought I wanted, but then the life I would have with it was like, oh, there, there there's no way. Like, there, there's no way I want to be the person I would have to be to keep at this pace and to excel. Um, and there was just so few models of women who were in nonprofit leadership who were well. Like, I was talking to my friends, and, like, they too were quitting. Like, there was this mess exodus from the sector where they were like, there's no way like this just is not sustainable to work in the way that you're expected to work and to give up the things you're expected to give up. And so the transition out of that was really like, yeah, it felt like survival. Like I took a sabbatical that was originally supposed to be a three month and turned into a six month sabbatical because I was just, I physically could not work. Like when I went to Um, start looking for consulting clients, I would have panic attacks. Like I literally could not do the work. And like how scared that made me feel because I had used so much of my savings and like I physically couldn't. Like my body could not. And I was like, girl, you're, you're making reports. Like what is going on? But like I physically was like so spent. I don't want to say triggered because people use trigger too much, but there was such a visceral reaction. Like I could not push through for the first time in my life. And so I needed to do something totally different. And that's where um, book trips came because it was something just totally different. And it wasn't about how hard I could push myself, um, even though I'm still unlearning that, but it was like, How can I create spaces where people can connect about the ideas that propel them, about the things that are hard, but you have a community of people that you can talk about them, like where you can come and be your authentic self with other women um, and you can be in awe and you can explore. And it's not about performing. It's like the one place that you don't have to perform. You don't have to show up any certain kind of way to belong. Like I wanted to create that because it's so much of what I needed in that moment, where I didn't know what I had to offer outside of what I could produce. I wanted to create a space where other people didn't have to offer anything.
0: All they had to do was come. In October of 2022, Jaleesa invited me along with a group of dynamic, beautiful women for the launch dinner of booked trips. I remember that was a particularly difficult time for me shout-out to seasonal depression, and I almost wanted to flake on the whole evening. I'm so glad I didn't. Jalisa had crafted a 10-course private dining experience based on the book You Made a Fool of Death with Your Beauty by Akweke Amazing. She thought of everything. A custom playlist setting the vibe of the evening and bringing us back to each sumptuous chapter of the book delicious garden-to-table food in a thoughtfully designed home, a beautifully set table with swag and decor from her favorite vendors and small businesses, I was blissed out, sitting around the table laughing and bonding with these incredible women, all brought together in the name of books and by our phenomenal friend. I felt seen, but most importantly, I felt held, and I needed that
1: early October, October 8th to be specific, we celebrated the one-year anniversary of book trips. So um, I brought together some of the alumni of our trips and some supporters for a 10-course or 10-chapter meal with Eats and Beats. And we read Butter Honey Pig Bread. Um, And so the recipes and meals from the book, as well as music that was mentioned for the book, was used to create a really curated dinner experience. And it was just really lovely to to be celebrated and to celebrate other people. So I'm really, really interested in like, how do we use food as like a conduit for connection? And that night was just, yeah, the, The epitome of what I was looking for. Like the women who came there together, like felt like they had found friendship. Um, The food was so delicious. And it was just a chance to celebrate. Like I'm looking for ways to celebrate along the journey. So entrepreneurship can be very, very difficult. Um, It has a lot of ups and downs. And so I'm committed to how do I have joy along the journey, not as this destination that's far off, but just something that's a regular practice. And so it was really good to take a pause and look back at this thing that. was a dream in my head that is now a reality that's bringing women together all around the world and just, yeah, celebrating that. I had to dig deep because I had built my identity around being like a high-performing nonprofit professional, and like those are the only skill sets that I thought I had. I thought I could do program management, evaluation, facilitation, like that's what I knew how to do. I knew how to do it well. I knew how to perform well in the nonprofit sector. And so I think the courage it took to imagine a different path that was about something totally different. Um, I think that was a courageous time in my life. It's really funny. One of my friends, Akilah, she had taken a screenshot of an Instagram story I wrote in August 2021, where I was like, you know what? I think I have another career in me. I want to merge my loves of philanthropy and travel and books and I want to like bring authors together and bring people together to talk about their work. I don't know what that looks like but I'm just putting it out here so that there's accountability. And my friend Akila had sent me a screenshot uh, that screenshot of it and like a couple weeks ago and she was like you did it. Like in two years you did it and I think the courageousness to have this farther unpolished idea and like invite other people to live in your dream. It's one thing to dream it, but it's another thing to allow people to experience it and have thoughts about it. I think the courageousness to do something totally different that way, um, I'm really, really proud of that. It's funny because I'm, I used to be, and in some ways am very type A, but when it comes to Booked, I don't have a set process, which is very interesting. So right now I'm reading um, The Creative Act by Rick Rubin, and he talks about how creativity is like just kind of being open to inspiration. So I think that's my process is like... Um, When it comes came to that dinner in particular, I read Bunner Huddy Pig Bread, and it was just in love with the story and how evocative the place was, and how you could like taste the food almost. Where I was like, no, I need this, like this plate, I needed immediately. Um, And so I just thought, like, what would living in this book feel like? So which of these dishes would I want to have together? Like when I think of some of the stories that one of the characters were telling about their dad, the, the way they introduced the father was his records. And so I was like, oh, when I'm thinking of playlists, I want to start with this record because the love of this story is really tied into the relationship with the father. And so starting starting there, but then also being like, there's like a chaos about Lagos, Nigeria. Like how do I, how do I reflect that in a playlist, like what are the transitions look like so that you can feel a little bit of the aliveness, but the chaos that is existing there. Um, But then also like really grounding it in the warmth. So I was reading an author interview and she talked about how her um, grandmother had made her Mosa, which was on our menu. And now that she's older, she doesn't make it anymore, but it makes her think about her childhood. So really grounding this in like Family, Because that's what the book was about. How do I make this feel like family? How do we have a conversation at the table that grounds us in our connection to each other? How do we introduce ourselves in ways that are not about like what we do in the world? But we the the opening question was like, who are your people like? Who are you with when you feel most yourself? So starting with that sense of like, who am I in the way I define it, not how the external world defines it, but how I'm feeling in this moment, what's coming to the top that I want you to know about me for us to have this conversation and this meal together. So, yeah, I think that's kind of my process. Like, how do I want people to feel? How did I feel reading it? And how do I want to translate that to others? What would be the most conducive to people feeling like they belong here, that they're excited, that they're connected? In larger booked experiences, I think it's just being very present out in the world. So I'll read a book um, where the place is very central to it. I'll think about the food of that place, the culture of that place. But then I let it sit for a while. Like I make itineraries a year in advance. But then I just allow myself to be inspired. There'll be a podcast I listen to, an article I read, or a walk in nature that'll bring some form of inspiration that it'll be a thread that you would have never thought of. But now that you're open to it, you see all these things are talking to each other. So, for example, um, we're going to Mexico City. And so, of course, Mexico City is a foodie city. So so there's that piece in the book that we're reading is about a woman who's a bigamist. So she has a husband in Laredo, Texas, and she has a husband been in Mexico City. And it's not a spoiler to say that a murder happens. Mm -hmm. And so it's like very spicy. It's about like um, what's hidden underneath the surface. It's about what women are allowed to desire. What does it look like to be a non-traditional woman and not be apologetic about those things? And so- there was a story I was telling that was very much about Mexico City. There's the Frito-Kayla angle about like a non-traditional woman. Like there's these, these things that you would guess. Mm-hmm. But then I happened to be stumbling upon an archive and I was reading um, Audre Lord's Sammy, a new spelling of my name. And she talks about studying at um, UNAM, um, a university in Mexico City. And then she talks about how her identity as a Black feminist warrior poet, like was really solidified in her time in Mexico City. And then it got me down the rabbit hole of reading the um, her work around the erotic
0: mm. and
1: around pleasure. And then that felt connected. And I was like, wow, there's all these threads that I would like. I wasn't thinking about those things. So I think it's very much having a frame, but allowing myself to be surprised and in awe mm. is my process.
0: I'm proud of my friend. I'm inspired by her journey. I want for her what I want for all of the people I love. A deep, abiding peace and contentment, pleasure even, in their life and their circumstances.
1: I think um, I have a kind of a strong relationship with pleasure. Like I'm always thinking about like what is the most enjoyable experience I can have right now? And I think that's new because I used to be like long suffering, like girl, why, like like I always felt like I had to work the hardest, um, stay the longest, need the least, like I thought that was something admirable about me for m- myself to be as small as possible, so that other folks could take up the space, um but it led me to a lot of burnout, and so now my relationship with pleasure it's it's some of that intentionality, what would I want? What do I want to feel, what do I want to experience in this moment and how do I give myself that and allowing myself to just do it. Like, um, for example, later today, I'm taking an impromptu trip to Brussels because Mansur Brown, this um, musician that I love, is playing in Brussels. And I can do that because I want to. Yes. And so like doing that. And there's a friend that's there for a trip with the UN. And so I'll also get to see a friend. So it's like just being very open to this might not be the most practical thing in the world, but why not? When I'm working, like knowing when is enough, I think that's pleasurable to say, you know what, today I have done enough and I want to have a dance party like in my living room. And I'm going to do that. Um, It's eating good food, like really being present for like the deliciousness of food and like giving myself that. So I think for me, pleasure is about like really tuning into what I want and desire and like giving myself that not in a hedonistic way, but in a way of like knowing that I deserve that, there's not something bad about wanting certain things and feeling things really deeply. When I think of the small town girl, I grew up in a place where the population is like, I don't know, I think it's definitely less than 30,000 people. Like, it's a very, very small town. And like, I couldn't imagine myself going to like living in a different part of upstate New York. Like, I went to undergrad in the town that I lived in. So from that to living a life where I can like without much thought, like just have an experience in a different country and feel comfortable doing that. I've solo traveled to over 20 countries like I'm just so different from the person that I could have imagined. I was scared of everything as a kid, like so scared of everything. Very insular, just scared. And now it's not that I'm not scared, but I don't use that fear as like a decider of how I live my life.
0: Deep gratitude to Julisa for her time and her stories. The Tell Her This podcast was created by Rochelle Rice with support from DC Commission on the Arts and Humanities. To support this podcast, please click the link in the show notes or visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash This. For more Tell Her This content, please visit tellherthispodcast.com and follow on social media at Tell Her This Podcast. Please share this episode with a friend and leave a rating or review. This episode includes music by Maya Rogers. You can find out more about Maya and her latest project, Orion and the Remembering Tree, through the links in the show notes. If you'd like to learn more about booked trips, please visit bookedtrips.com. Editing and Sound Design by Rochelle Rice. Mixing and Editing by Ray Jala. And I'm your host, Rochelle Rice. And you can find me at Rochelle Rice Music across all social platforms. Until next time, be true and be well.